Hello, and welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. I'm Penny Lewis, a neuroscientist specializing in the study of sleep and memory, and the presenter of this show. In the podcast, we talk about all things related to sleep, from dreaming and sleepwalking to what sleep does for our brain and our body, and how we can get more out of our sleep. Please see the podcast webpage for details. Today's guest is Professor Chiara Cirelli from the Psychiatry Department at the University of Wisconsin. Professor Cirelli is famous for her synaptic homeostasis hypothesis, which proposes that the overarching function of sleep is to downscale synapses. We start by talking about how she initially became involved in sleep research, and then we talk about the importance of cross-species approaches. Finally, Professor Cirelli explains the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis in detail and treats us to her most recent finding, e.g. synapses associated with new learning are protected from downscaling during sleep. Instead, it's the background noise that is reduced, allowing for increased signal-to-noise. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Sleep Science Podcast. Thank you again so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. To talk about sleep, that, as you know, is my passion. It has always been my passion. And that's actually the very first thing I want to ask you about. I want to ask you, how did you first become interested and passionate about sleep? In medical school, basically, I studied medicine in Pisa, in Italy. And literally, the first weeks or so of my medical studies, I start going into the lab in physiology. And as you know, PISA has a very long tradition in studying the reticular formation and behavioral states, uh, starting from Moruzzi. And so I was immediately in a very you know, supportive environment to try to understand why we need to sleep. And so it was very natural for me. And literally, I spent my six years of medical studies going into the lab almost every afternoon. But I would spend hours checking the recordings of the cats because at that time, of course, they were still done with manual paper. So you really had to be there all the time to check that the paper would not get trapped into the grass machine. And that's how I spent literally my afternoons studying medicine and checking the recordings. And at that time, we were with Maria Pompeiano in the lab of Ottavio Pompeiano, who was extremely supportive of uh, my passion and uh, Giulio Tononi's passion and Maria's passions about sleep. So it was uh, actually a wonderful time. And I never left. When I interview students or students come to my sleep course and they ask me, there are so many topics in neuroscience that are fascinating, which is absolutely true. But how did you decide about sleep? And I say, I'm sorry, I, you know, I knew from the beginning when I went to Pisa, I knew that I wanted to study the brain. But then as soon as I went into this lab and I met sleep and sleep research, that was it. And I had no doubt and I never changed my mind. And what kind of things were you looking at in the cats at that time? At that time, we were studying specifically REM sleep and the mechanisms of regulation through the modulation, specifically by the noradrenergic system. So I was injecting noradrenergic agonists and antagonists in the Pontine area mainly, because at that time was, of course, an area known to be directly involved in different aspects of REM sleep. So it was mainly through pharmacology. 
through these local injection studies. And then at the end of my medical studies, and then I did the PhD in uh, PISA also, we moved more towards molecular biology. It was the very beginning of learning how to use uh, immediately gene expression as a marker of neuronal activity rather than electrophysiology. We would allow, of course, uh, us to not just check one region or record from one region, but to check the entire brain, although you have, of course, to sacrifice the animal. But that was my entrance to the molecular biology of sleep and wake through the study of immediately genes like FOSS or NGFIA. And that's where, at the beginning with Maria and Giulio, the first impression that indeed there are so many changes already from just if you compare a few hours of sleep relative to a few hours of sleep deprivation or spontaneous waking. At that time, in the early 90s, immediately genes became very quickly very popular, but people were using them mainly in rather, I would say, non-physiological conditions, say, after, you know, strong neuronal activity due to epileptic seizures. And instead, we just compared, again, sleep and wake, no stimulation, spontaneous states. And many people at the beginning were quite, you know, skeptical that we would find something obvious when you compare the brains in these two conditions. But we did, of course, and then these studies have been replicated by many, many other labs. So it was an exciting introduction for you into the field of sleep. Yes. You know, I was trained as a cat electrophysiologist. And at that time, still, you know, the cat was a very nice model because especially if you want to do electrophysiology, we know cats sleep all the time. So you are not slave of their routine, of their, you know, light-dark cycle as you are for rodents. And so it was a nice model, but very quickly became, uh, of course, obvious that cats have many other problems. And for all then the molecular studies, the genetic studies, very quickly we moved to, to first rats for the immediately genes in general, and then mice, and then flies. So uh, in, my, in my career as a sleep scientist, I actually have gone down, if you wish, the phylogenetic scale, starting from cats and then to flies. And it, it's actually something that is not maybe not entirely unique, but quite special about you, I think, is that you've worked in so many different species, you know, all the way from flies to humans and everything in between. I wonder if you have a favorite species that you think is the best one to study. I don't, actually. I don't. The main reason why I keep switching and I keep using either one or the other or many simultaneously is because mainly what we have always been interested in is not a specific mechanism, but the functions of sleep. And we start from the assumption that these functions to justify the presence of sleep across phylogeny, despite the fact of being asleep a, a dangerous situation to be in, must be a very important function, must be an essential function, and it should be true across species. And so any idea that you have about sleep, if it's then you can confirm it 100%, but only in few species, but not in others, to me, that's not very, very compelling. And so that's why it's very important early on, once you have some ideas, I think, to immediately check whether overall the evidence is present in other species. 
then the evidence that each animal model can give you can vary, you know, in flies, because supposedly they are so easy and uh, the experiments are fast, which are not, of course, at the end. But uh, all the genetic approaches, especially a few years ago, were much easier in flies than in mice, say. Now, I'm not sure. I mean, genetics, uh, all the new technologies have advanced so much in rodents too, that it's becoming questionable whether just saying in general genetic approaches are easier in flies than in mice is still true. I don't think actually this is true, but flies still have a very important role because, again, these functions are very basic. They should apply also to simpler nervous systems like the drosophila brain. But I don't have a a preferred uh, species. Which is probably part of the reason that you are able to work in so many of them. But you have found at least one general principle, probably many more, but the first one I want to focus on is about synaptic homeostasis that is true across all of the species that you've looked at. Could you talk a bit about that? Yes, you are, you are correct. And, and that's why we used phylogeny. So the, this general idea that we have is that sleep is really the price for brain plasticity. So for our brain to be able to learn and adapt every day to an ever-changing environment, you build up because of this process of learning overall an increase in synaptic strength. So you end your wake day with synapses overall in many brain regions, in many brain circuits that are stronger on average than when you started your day. And that's because most forms of learning do happen through strengthening rather than weakening. And reason for that actually is because synapses and neuronal activity is very expensive energetically. So the brain tends to be quiet and be lean to begin with. And then when it's needed because there is learning, it does so by increasing activity and firing and synaptic strength rather than decreasing. That's the fundamental rationale. Because in in theory, of course, you can implement rules of learning the other way around. So you can start with a network that is extremely strong and implement learning through weakening of connections. But biologically, the, the constraints in real life, in a real brain, due to the cost, the ATP literally that is needed to sustain synaptic activity, leads to the fact that instead, in a biological system, is the other way around. That you stay low, but then when it counts, when it's very important because you have to adapt and learn, you go up in strength. But cannot be sustained in the long run. You can just keep going up because it's too expensive energetically and also because there is a limit, of course, at one point synapses will saturate and will no longer be able to further increase their efficacy. And that's the need for renormalization. Now, this general principle that, you know, we learn mainly by strengthening synaptic connections. And because of that, we need a renormalization 
is very well accepted. I think most researchers would agree. But many researchers think that the brain is able actually to maintain this balance at any given time or mostly at any given time so that we are learning now, we are talking. Certainly, I will lay down some memory traces of our conversation so there will be already in the short run an effect, a learning effect due to my experience with you. But some people think that simultaneously the brain is able to depress other circuits that are not directly engaged because of our conversation. And so that if you were able to, let's say, sample and measure, assuming that these were possible, all my connections now, well, they would not change. They will be, some will be up because of what I'm telling you and now the way we are interacting, but others will be depressed. And instead, the fundamental concept in this synaptic homeostasis hypothesis is that, yes, the balance absolutely has to be maintained. Everybody agrees on that, but this is not every minute, is at the very least across the 24 hours. So there is a period, the wake day, in which there is a net increase, so there is an imbalance up, and then sleep instead brings down and brings back the system more or less to the same level. Now, exactly to the same level, we don't know, because until we won't be able to really measure everything every day or for longer time courses, we won't know. But in general, that's what I'm saying, at least 24 hours. It's very difficult also to measure in a comprehensive way the changes in synaptic efficacy over days in any animal model and try to, at the same time, control carefully for sleep and wake to try really then to tease apart the effects of behavioral states. But that's the general concept, basically. We learn when we are awake and it's not just if we go to a lecture or a class. It's what we call ongoing learning. Because learning, by definition, is the ability of the brain to adapt to changes in the external world. And that's happening all the time when we are connected to the world. And it doesn't instead, mainly, when we are disconnected, which is when we are asleep. And so that's a very important fundamental point that, you know, there are many, many ideas about why we need to sleep. But I think you have to start from the definition of sleep. The fact that what really distinguishes sleep from any other behavioral state, including just quiet wake, is the fact that we are partially sensory motorily disconnected. We lose this ability to respond very promptly to a stimulus that could be a very dangerous stimulus. And so why would you spend a third of your life and all animals that have been studied so far in such a potentially dangerous state if there weren't at least one good reason to take that risk? Now, it may not be in absolute terms, but sleep provides a much, much better condition to produce this process of renormalization, which overall is a net decrease in synaptic strength that can only happen when you are disconnected from the environment, cannot happen during wake. So the general idea is, if this is true, we should see that if we measure synaptic strength after several hours, normal hours of wake or normal hours of sleep, we should see this imbalance because that's a prediction. 
And that's what we have been trying to do over more than 15 years in different species. In some animals, in flies, for instance, you can use molecular markers. In mice, you can do the same. In flies, you can use other structural markers. In people, of course, and in mice, you can use electrophysiological markers because there is no single measure of synaptic strength that is definitive. Because if you think about synaptic efficacy, you can measure it electrophysiologically by the the response to the electrophysiological response. That's one way. But all synapses are made up of proteins, especially receptors that are the ones for the neurotransmitter, especially glutamate. So you can measure the expression of these receptors, and that's perhaps the best molecular marker that you can use. It's very established in the field, not just in sleep. And so that's a very solid evidence that you can have. And that's another way that we have been using. Fortunately for us, there is a very strong correlation between structural plasticity and functional plasticity. Meaning, if your synapses are stronger because of the entire wake day, they should also be on average bigger. Literally, they grow in size because they need to incorporate more of these receptors, for instance, and more of these proteins that allow them to work more effectively. And so, It should really be the case that if you measure the size of synapses, that they should grow with wake and shrink with sleep. And this is one of the efforts that we have done, you know, over the last several years that is very time consuming because, of course, synapses are very small. And so you need electromicroscopy, actually, and very quantitative serial electromicroscopy to measure the size of the connections. In theory, it works in any kind of brain that you can collect. Is better in mice or in flies than in rats, simply because mice have smaller brains. So every species has its own advantages and disadvantages. But the overall goal is to test this main claim. There should be a net imbalance. And that's what we have been doing. And we continue to do. We are not done because the evidence, I think, overall is going in the right direction. But, you know, it's still early to say one way or another that we are done because, for instance, these ultrastructural studies, we have only done it in a very few small regions. And the one of the consequences of this hypothesis is that if really sleep is the price for plasticity, means that this process of renormalization should occur in any circuit, any brain region that is plastic, that undergoes all this plasticity during wake. And we are trying to figure out then how widespread is this process. I don't know really of any good evidence saying that there is at least one brain area that is not plastic, that is not able to learn. If there is plasticity, I think, based on this hypothesis, there is a need for renormalization that is sleep-dependent. That's what we are trying to do, to go through and analyzing different regions. And, you know, you start with the relatively easy ones that are the ones that are best known, like the cortex or the hippocampus. But, you know, what about the striatum, the cervellum? Because these areas are also known to follow usually rules of plasticity that may be a little bit different. And so that's very challenging. So let me just make sure that I'm following and that people listening will also understand the hypothesis. So basically, 
the idea is when you're awake, you're learning, you're exposed to a lot of stimuli that you're taking in, and those are being coded somehow in the brain. And when things are coded in the brain, it always involves strengthening and potentiation of synapses. And the point is that you can't just keep strengthening and potentiating synapses forever because you will run out of space. The brain doesn't have infinite space for this. And so your synaptic homeostasis hypothesis proposes that one of the main functions of sleep is to actually renormalize, to downscale some of those synapses that have been strengthened across wake, but while maintaining the information that was learned. So when you downscale them, you have to maintain the relationships between the strong and the weak synapses, but maybe just downscale everything together. Is that right? Yeah. So three things. First of all, the evidence that learning produces synaptic potentiation overall, meaning strengthening, it applies to most forms of learnings, but is not absolute. So there are a few forms of learning. For instance, learning that something has become familiar. So familiarity recognition goes the other way around. And if you think about it, it makes sense. So you first encounter something that has potentiation, but when you then repeatedly are exposed to the same thing, you learn, oh, this is no longer interesting or something. Aspects of this learning go the other way around. So that's what I'm saying. It's not absolute, but certainly the great majority of learning paradigms that have been studied carefully show that it's potentiation and it's just not declarative forms or fear conditioning or motor skill learning, of course, is one of the best characterized. So yes, it's absolutely net overall is potentiation, but it's not absolute. The second point, the more they grow these synapses due to learning, the more they are becoming very costly. But the cost is not just space. Actually, we don't know to what extent space is the, the fundamental fact. They need more energy. They need more proteins, more lipids. Many of this stuff are produced in the cell body, which is very far in neurons from most of the synapses. So just supplying all this material to keep these new, stronger synapses running is extremely expensive energy. So that's the cellular burden. Again, they will saturate probably because of this energy. And so these kind of synapses will no longer be able to code something new. They might be totally then committed to that memory, and that memory may last your entire life, which we know, of course, is true, but they can no longer probably be used to learn something else. And if you think that, you know, the idea is that, well, if every day I keep learning, hopefully something new, but then I keep committing, at one point there is a limit. So that's one thing. When you renormalize overall to explain all the very complex beneficial effects of sleep at the behavioral level, you can't account for that by thinking that there is a global downscaling. Now, downscaling is a very precise term, meaning all synapses should go down by the same amount proportional to their size. Now, we don't know if this is the case at the level of single synapses. The only evidence that we had for a scaling in terms of being proportional to their size was based on our uh, ultrastructural studies. But there, remember, we are comparing two different populations. So it's a population level that you can say, well, overall, they go down. But even in that study, it was not global. 
we found that at least 20% of the synapses that, uh, by the way, were the biggest, the so-called mushroom synapses, did not go down. And we speculated, of course, we have no proof for that, well, that those are indeed the synapses that are already committed to very important memories. They are not going to change, at least across the you know, normal sleep-wake cycle, or even if you are sleep-deprived for a few hours. So it's very important to understand that we don't think is global downscaling. It is what we call now smart down selection. It must be selective. It must be on one hand broad and it has to cover many circuits because presumably when you are awake, you are using a lot of these circuits in your brain. But the going down, if it were just a question of everybody goes down so that all the relationships are kept exactly the same, I think it would be very hard to account then for behavioral effects like, you know, gist destruction, for instance. So it's not that when we wake up and we are refreshed after sleep, we are just better able to learn a new thing. And we have, of course, as you know very well, consolidated memories, but we have also integrated these memories with our previous body of knowledge. A global downscaling is very hard to think how that could account for these behavioral effects. Okay, so I, I see why that's a really important point that you're making there. So it's not a global downscaling. The very strongest synapses probably don't downscale, or at least they don't downscale proportionately. But the weaker synapses do downscale, and those will maintain the ratio somehow between them. And and what you're saying is that possibly things like just abstraction might come out of that difference in that some things downscale and some things don't. Yes, but I don't even know if it's just the weakest. You know, it depends on what you do during wake. The evidence that I think is strong is that, well, you have these measures after wake or after sleep, you see this imbalance. So this general idea, I think, is correct. But how you get there exactly is still an open question. And so who is spared? Which kind of synapses are protected from this process of renormalization is still very much unclear. And if there are even synapses that actually go up, a minority of synapses that go up during sleep also is unclear. Because all this requires, to really answer this question, requires that you are able to see exactly what happens to these synapses based on whether they were small, they were big, they were involved in the learning or not. And see, that's the challenge. And that's what we have been trying to do recently. And we have done one first attempt to do this in this last study that is just now completed, doing a, a method that allows you in vivo to do this repeated to photo imaging so that you can literally follow, see the synapses in a live mouse, and you see them, not many of them, but a few hundreds of them in each animal before he goes to sleep and then you allow the animal, the mouse, to sleep for six, seven hours. Then you put the mouse again back under the microscope for just a few minutes to look at the synapses again, to see what happened to them. And then you can ask the mouse to do a task, in this case a motor task, and then you see what happens to the synapses and then what happens after sleep. So that's what we have done recently. 
And when I say we look at the synapses, yes, we can literally see their shape, how large they are. But because this is not electromicroscopy, this is to photon microscopy, so it doesn't have the same resolution, spatial resolution as electromicroscopy. So we are using a molecular marker, which is, tells you how many of these glutamatergic excitatory receptors are in the synapse. Okay, so the more receptors there are, the stronger is the synapse and the bigger is the synapse. And what we see now at the level, again, of single synapses is that in general, overall, this marker goes down with sleep, which is expected based on all the other evidence that we had before. But we can also see that it goes up immediately after learning which is also expected. And then we see that immediately after learning, if the animal goes to sleep again, the net effect of sleep remains renormalization, a depression of synaptic strength, which is the first time that we can really show this, provide direct evidence, because all the studies that we have done so far were done in animals that were spontaneously awake, exposed to novel objects, or they could go around their cage with a running wheel, because we try to mimic normal, let's say, daily life. You know, if we go back to the beginning of our conversation, I was talking about ongoing learning. And that's what we are trying to mimic, basically. But in this study, one of the question marks was, well, but maybe this is true in general, but when you really are learning something new in a very specific way, like in this case, the mice are learning to stay on a complex wheel that is running faster and faster. Well, maybe if you look now in motor cortex, you will not see this renormalization. And instead, these new results are showing that the net effect of sleep remains exactly the same. So the net effect is going down. But going back to your question, now we can see not just the net overall effect, we can follow each single synapse. And so we have asked, let's focus on the synapses that have shown the largest increase with learning. So when we see the mice immediately before they do this task and then immediately after that. And some of them, as expected, show a large increase. Now, then we are asking what happens afterwards if the animal was allowed to sleep or was sleep deprived. And the surprising, if you think, a very interesting result that we got is the following, that these synapses that we call the max synapses, okay, the ones that are really strengthened, so we think really they are connected more directly to learning. They go up with learning, and then even 24 hours later, they're still potentiated. They still maintain quite high level of this marker. But this is true absolutely in the same way in the animals that immediately after learning could sleep or in the other ones that instead were sleep deprived. So sleep doesn't seem per se to provide any specific advantage or is not treating these max spines differently. But these spines are only a minority of all spines, are let's say 10, 15% of all the synapses or spines. The great majority of the synapses, the other spines that were not really affected by learning, those are the ones that go down with sleep in strength, and instead they don't go down with sleep deprivation. So that's where the effect of sleep occurs. And we can show in this study that indeed is this going down in strength in the other spines that are the majority that correlates with the better behavior 
in the sleeping animals after sleeping this task, basically. So it's the first time that we can directly connect better performance with specific type of synapses, which are the other synapses. But the max spines, at the beginning, before learning, some of them are big, some of them are actually small. It's not that being very large or very small predicts automatically whether these spines will be involved. So it, I was going to say it's whether they were involved in the learning, but it's not that. Well, so the ones that what we call the max spines can be small or big, but once they become max spines, then they are treated differently because they remain basically potentiated. They lose very little independent of sleep and sleep deprivation. The other spines, the, some of them are big, some of them are small, but were not directly engaged in the learning. Those are the ones that are subjected to this Renormalization. So it's so interesting and it's a real update compared to some of your prior data and prior thinking. And I'm, I'm so curious then, why do you think that the downscaling of the spines that were not involved in learning then predicts the sleep benefit to the learning? Is it because it's making more resources available? Somehow, What we see basically is there is this increase in the signal-to-noise ratio after sleep. But this correlation is only with the other spines or all spines, but all spines is the other spines because they are the great majority. There is no correlation with the max spines, which makes sense because the max spines, again, behave in the same way. They don't change. They don't change. And yet, if you test these animals, if you have sleep deprived them immediately after learning, they perform much worse than the sleeping animals. So behaviorally, there is a difference. So clearly, the difference cannot be explained by the max spines, has to come from the other spines. And what we see is if you simply measure synaptic strength by calculating the difference in the expression of this marker between the max and the other spines in the two groups. Although the max spines, again, they are exactly the same in the two groups, but relatively speaking, at the end of sleep, they are stronger relatively, simply because everybody else went down with sleep, but I not see. with sleep deprivation. And so that's the interaction that we see that is significant. And so this signal-to-noise ratio increases, I think, not because there is a net increase in the signal, the max spines stay there, but because there is a decrease in the noise, because for this task, everybody else, you know, is noise, basically. You know, it's just, it's one experiment, it's one specific task, it's a very limited circuit, but it's the first time that we can try to really connect system level benefit that we have characterized in this task we have confirmed so it's very it's very solid behaviorally this task allows the consolidation in performance in this task and we are trying now we have been able to connect for the first time with how single spines are behaving and again, also for me, it was interesting to see that we could have predicted, well, maybe the max spines go down a little bit less, but still there is a difference in the way they go down relative to sleep deprivation. And instead, it doesn't seem to be the case. Now, max spines, by definition, are the ones that increase the most 
And then once they have increased the most, and that's how we select them, one could argue, well, the only way they can go is going down a little bit, which is what we see. So there is this issue of regression to the mean effects that is huge that we have certainly tried to correct as much as possible. But when you were saying, well, what are the spines that uh, change or are affected the most? You you have to deal with these issues of... uh, regression to the mean in a way that is not trivial. But what we can certainly say that has nothing to do with the regression to the mean is that this interaction that I mentioned, even if there is a regression to the mean effect for the max spines, it should apply to the same way after sleep and after sleep deprivation. But the differential effect of the other spines remains. So I think it's a first indication, first of all, again, that the process is not global and that depending on what really happened to the single synapses in this case, during the wake period is going to dictate how then these synapses are treated by sleep. It's really exciting. So congratulations on the new data. And it feels to me like a really nice kind of complement to many things that you've said earlier in your studies, where, for instance, I mean, you always talked about an increase in signal-to-noise as being the thing that would benefit memory after sleep because of some kind of downscaling where the noise would be reduced. So this is now showing more exactly how that could be happening, I think. And additionally, is it correct to say this is the first study in which you've been able to really look at the behavior as well? Because you have many, many studies where you compare sleep to sleep deprivation and you look at what's happening to the synapses, either by measuring them or you know, in many different ways, as you said earlier, across species and you show that they downscale if you've slept compared to sleep deprivation. But I don't remember another study where you really related it to a learning task and then performance after sleep and consolidation. That is correct. So we have used this task because we spent three years to validate this task as being sleep dependent. And then we use this because where the learning occurs, because of course, when you want to jump from system level behavior to the synapses, you have to have a good guess of where to look. Because again, even with these new methods like two photon imaging, you can only look at a small region of the brain. And actually better if it's superficial rather than, you know, it could not be done easily, let's say in that deep in the hypothalamus. But uh, fortunately, I mean, that's why we chose this task. It's about motor cortex and it's about the superficial layers of motor cortex that, that can be imaged relatively easy. So, yes, you are correct. This is the first time. And also one other important detail, but I think is very important in general. Several of our previous studies, especially mice, used young animals in which the brain is already mature, but still they are, let's say, one month old. So still consider adolescent mice. This study is done in adult mice. So you can say here, we really have evidence that this process of renormalization across, you know, just a few hours happens in a mature adult brain. And so that this need for plasticity and their renormalization keeps being there even in an adult brain. I think this is an important point that uh, has to be stressed because after all, we sleep every night, even as adults. So I have a speculative question about this. So we have been repeatedly seeing that when we manipulate 
for instance, replay during sleep, we find that it takes weeks sometimes for the effects to emerge. So sometimes we see a behavioral advantage the next day, but sometimes we don't see it for a week or two weeks or three weeks. And looking at the brain data, we find that usually we we find some kind of upregulation in the systems involved in the task. So if it's a motor task, we see more activity in those motor circuits after the first night. If it's a, a hippocampal memory task, we see more activation in the hippocampus when we probe that memory on the day after the manipulation. So sometimes we see an upregulation in the system, but no behavioral benefit until a week or two later, uh, which is an interesting puzzle. And I'm just wondering if it could link in quite nicely with what you're saying here, because it could be that you need to turn down the noise so that the system which has learned something can have a higher signal to noise ratio. And then the plasticity can continue across the next week. Maybe it's during sleep or maybe it's all the time. I don't know. And that's when eventually you will start to see some kind of benefit. You are absolutely correct. As I mentioned at the beginning, it may be challenging to show it at the synapse level because, again, then you need to be able to follow this across days while still very much controlling. But that's what I think is happening. And there is a lot of evidence, not from sleep studies, I believe, but in general of plasticity of researchers who look for the effects of learning on synapses. The very often changes keep going on for days. And, you know, it's a absolutely naive that we think that everything is done after one night or even, you know, six, seven hours of sleep. It's just, it's easier. It's manageable experimentally because it's more controllable. But first of all, it's an ongoing process, of course, because it will depend on what you do the next day, correct? How much you use that circuit, how much you think about what you have done. But absolutely, I mean, all the evidence, although it's still indirect, points to the fact that this is a long-term process, certainly across days, not hours, and probably weeks. It probably very much depends on the specific circuit that is involved. And is that something you might try to follow across time? It's very challenging, but yes, that's one possibility. But you see, the way this task is designed is to have most of the learning the first day, but on purpose, so that we can see better the effects of sleep or sleep deprivation. So it's not that the animals can have much more learning over and much more improvement in performance in this specific task over many, many days. So you will have probably to see what you see. You will have to use a task that is more graded in performance uh, across different days. But yes, absolutely. It's, it's one of the challenges for the, for the future. Mm-hmm. I think it's really exciting, but I agree it's going to be very tough to, to study. Let me ask you a little bit more about down selection. I saw that you have a brand new paper in March on down selection with Julio. And I wonder, in the context of what we've just talked about, if you can say anything more about how the brain would choose which synapses to downscale and which synapses to maintain. I mean, what you've said is it's the ones that were just used for learning something which do not get downscaled. But is that it or is there more subtlety in it than that? 
Well, we don't know. And a lot of this evidence comes from other labs who have been, you know, testing these hypotheses. And, and also they use very specific learning tasks like neuroprosthetic learning and can provide they have a lot of expertise in uh, very specific uh, paradigms. So I think the general consensus, the evidence that we have so far as a field is that indeed it matters how much you use a specific they say neuron because very often these analyses are done at the actually neuron level rather than single synapse level. If you use a circuit to learn during the day, that circuit overall at the neuronal level is going to have an advantage to try to escape this scaling because these neurons are going to be more active during sleep. This is at the overall, at the electrophysiological level. At the molecular level, there has been a lot of uh, new evidence about specific molecular markers that could help, even within a single specific neuron, to help say these synapses are the ones that should be somehow protected rather than others. And this, again, is not magic. It really depends directly on what, how you have used those synapses during wake. For instance, the learning per se, we know, is at the end at the molecular level means that more of these excitatory receptors are incorporated into the synapses and they are phosphorylated. Now, it is also known that once you have phosphorylated these receptors, those receptors, if you, let's say, in culture, in slices, so in vitro studies, try to depress the synapses, you cannot, or in any case, they are much more resistant than the others. So the synapses are all under the sleep treatment and this phosphorylation changes make receptors less susceptible to the internalization. That's one mechanism. The other mechanism is to do this internalization, you need specific enzymes. Many of these process, this turnover is actually constitutive. It goes on all the time. But if when during wake, in some synapses, there is learning, again, there are changes, let's say, in the phosphorylation of these molecules, enzymes, that makes them less active. And so suddenly, then this process of constitutive turnover slows down because of learning. So there are already maybe three, four molecular mechanisms that we can imagine are tagging the synapses that can then make the process smart during sleep in this way. Okay. And probably as we discussed, you know, there are positive tagging, meaning those are the ones that then are protecting the synapses that have been used and learned from the downscaling and negative tagging, because there is evidence, although not absolutely not yet, would be great if they were, but not yet. But there is a mechanism that, that has been described that seems to tag the synapses they are not used during wake. And so those synapses then tend to lose these receptors. And you could imagine that that's why these synapses are actually more prone to the downscaling during sleep. So at the molecular level, researchers are finding many, many ways in which, you know, this process could be selective. And I'm sure there are many mechanisms. So what counts for this idea, for this general hypothesis, that there is overall a net increase and then a net decrease? How you get there certainly varies across species and even in the same animal across brain regions. 
even already at the structural level, if we just focus on our electromicroscopy studies, it's obvious that the cortex and hippocampus, even if you just look at the same marker of a structural synaptic strength, the overall net effect is the same. It goes down, but it goes down differently in the two regions with different rules, it seems. But it makes sense, of course. The hippocampus learns in a very different way than the cortex. But that's what I'm saying, you know, the mechanisms are going to be multiple. There is redundancy, of course. It better be that there is a lot of redundancy in this process if it's really an important process. And in fact, when you're seeing it so broadly across species and across areas, it, it has to have many redundant mechanisms. Yes. And, yes. And it, it possibly that means it may have evolved separately in each of those cases, which would be even more of an argument for being an important process. What about the interaction with memory replay and sleep? Do you think that can influence the down selection or the phosphorylation you were talking about? Yes. So the replay in terms of some circuits being reactivated during sleep in a wake-like mode, I think in one sense is what you would expect if you are engaging during wake a circuit very heavily and that results in potentiation of that circuit, which means that those neurons are more strongly connected to each other. When you go to sleep and the brain is active, which I think is perhaps the most important single piece of evidence that we as sleep field have obtained over the last century, the neurons are very active, more or less simultaneously. But when you go to sleep and neurons are active, it may makes a lot of sense that if you run these networks spontaneously, the neurons that are more strongly related to each other are more likely to be co-active during sleep, especially at the beginning of sleep. So it makes a lot of sense. And those neurons, for the reasons and the mechanisms that we have discussed, should be in a better position to survive this process of cleaning due to sleep. So essentially, they are stronger because they're reactivating and because they are stronger, they are more likely to survive or at least not to be downscaled. Yeah. So as simple as that, basically. Yeah. Yes. In one sense, yes. Okay. So let me ask you, there's a lot of interest at the moment in trying to manipulate sleep in humans to get health or cognitive benefits. Given what we've discussed about the roles for sleep, do you think this is a good idea or misguided? So what do you mean by manipulating sleep? By so when I say manipulate, I guess I'm thinking, yes, reactivation or maybe boosting the slow oscillations or elongating REM periods, you know, enhancing theta activity, these kind of manipulations. Yes, yes. I don't know. I feel that is a bit early to try to focus and target one very specific aspect rather than all sleep as such. Now, for slow waves, there is a lot of evidence that, you know, links slow waves then to better performance. Now, the evidence is still, though, is quite limited, especially for the long-term consequences. So I'm not sure. I would prefer to see much more evidence in animal studies before trying to use this, especially not so much in, you know, healthy controls in which you can do, but, you know, people are trying to implement these already even in uh, diseased populations. And I'm just not convinced that we have enough evidence for that. So we should try to understand sleep 
more before we manipulate it. Yes, I think. Yes. Yes. Seems very sensible. <laughs> um, so yeah. one final question. Now we've already touched on this, but what do you see as the big questions going forward for the field in general or, or for yourself? Well, for myself, it's easy, meaning I'm still looking to try to prove really this hypothesis right or wrong. I think the evidence is good, but it's still limited. So we need to expand this investigation to much broader areas, uh, different conditions, before we can say that really this is uh, happening in a broad way. And I think in general for the field, uh, one hand is really to try to understand the functions of sleep. And the other then is what you alluded to. We generally speaking know that it, sleep is good, but exactly why still remains quite unclear. You know, there is this divide between thinking that sleep is very important for the brain and or the body. And very often this controversy seems to be quite misplaced or misunderstood. But the reality is that there isn't, in my mind, extremely strong evidence that we can say that sleep is important for some specific body function let's say, on top of, in addition to the evidence that if you are, you know, sleep deprived, there is an impairment in that function. But that's not the same as showing that if you have sleep and spontaneous wake, sleep is much better than normal wake, let's say the wake day. That's a very high bar that for cognition, you know, we are trying to address all the time. And there is evidence that even during the just wake days, not just through sleep deprivation, I think that you can prove the sleep is important for cognition. But I'm, I'm not sure that we have the same kind of strong evidence often for uh, many other functions. And I think that's a big challenge, especially when you think about how you could show these again using animal models. One of the big points is how can I prove, let's say, that is sleep that is very important rather than just wake or quiet wake. It's very difficult to keep a mouse quiet. It's important possible, basically. And so the quiet wake behavior is something that is relatively easy to study in humans, certainly not in uh, animals in general. But it's a very important point if you want to show indeed a specific advantage of sleep relative to wake, not just again after one or two nights of, of sleep deprivation. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I have always been worried by the sleep deprivation as a control because I think sleep deprivation is more like hitting the system with a hammer than just the absence of sleep. You know, so, so much stress yeah. and physiological yeah. Well, symptoms. Yeah, it, it it's very important. In our lab, we have been using, we still use sleep deprivation. It's extremely useful, but it has limitation. And also, you know, it comes in flavors. And one thing is to keep an animal awake for three, four hours. One thing is to go and try to force a sleep restriction for several days. You get very important answers to some specific questions. But when you really are asking why sleep is here and why it evolved, you can't just rely on sleep deprivations. I think sleep deprivation still remains a fundamental tool. And when every reviewer says, oh, but sleep deprivation is stressful, my reply is, yes, sure it's stressful, but being awake, continuously awake, is stressful. If you tell me stressful at the cellular level that has these components in terms of heat shock proteins, 
chaperones, all this cellular response that is induced by a stress, including sleep deprivation, well, the beginning of that response is already present in spontaneous wake. And so, you know, again, yeah, you can say sleep deprivation is stressful, but what do you mean exactly? And it's not an all or none situation. Fair. <laughs> I, I, agree. <laughs> I agree with you. Chiara, we could, I feel we could talk for much longer and there are so many other things I would love to ask you. Thank you so very much for You're very your welcome. Time. You've been listening to the Sleep Science Podcast with me, Penny Lewis. My guest today was Professor Chiara Cirelli from the University of Wisconsin. Our producer was Sophie Smith. If you've enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing to the podcast or liking us on Twitter. We're planning a Q&A session for the last episode of this series, so if you have questions about this episode or anything else sleep-related, please send them to us on Twitter at hashtag sleepsciencepodcastqna. Thanks for listening, and until next time, sleep well! <laughs>